questions. Um, Paul is spending a lot of time describing really the greatness or the majesty of Christ. Uh, and so we've been, you know, we're taking our time and looking at each of the words. And you remember that when you do that, if you're, when, you, when you look at the words and you're looking at the definitions of the words, and uh, maybe at times, as, as we've mentioned before, sometimes there are some Bible dictionaries that are what we call expository Bible dictionaries. So they don't just give you like a one or two sentence definition. Uh, they will go into how the word is most often used in the Bible, why it's used, what, what, it's, what the author is trying to express, uh, and those types of things. And so when we go through all these definitions, the idea then is that as we, as we gather these things, you then want to go back and then reread the verse uh, with that information. And so that, that really helps you to kind of then have a better grasp of what Paul is talking about. Again, also remember that when we do that, uh, and this is a good habit to have, that whenever we study scripture, uh, you do always want to pray and ask the Lord uh, to open your mind. You know, because you're not, it, even though you're studying it, you could study an encyclopedia, you can study a medicine book, a lot of things we can study and we can begin to get those things. Uh, but the idea here is that we want to have our spiritual understanding uh, and, and we, we want to have spiritual insight to that. So now that doesn't change what we're reading. But the idea is, is that what we are, we are feeding on the word of God is just for spiritual nourishment. And so we want to make sure, or at least we, hopefully you want this to make sure, that it's not just informing our minds. It's never bypassing our minds, so it's never that. Because um, sometimes Christians can kind of go in that direction. You know, it's only based on how that verse makes me feel or that kind of thing. But there is this idea that as we understand it better and we're using the brains that God has given us, we also want to make sure that, that the totality of us as an individual, that my spirit, that I, I'm affected spiritually by what I'm reading. Um, and so sometimes, uh, you may not do this, but if you do read commentaries or sometimes maybe an old sermon, sometimes you'll hear or come across individuals who say that when they're studying a certain passage, they feel like their soul or the inner man just wants to break out in praise because you're just blown away by how, how great God is. And I think oftentimes what, what kind of goes along with that is as we are recognizing really how great God is, at the same time remembering that he actually loves us and cares about what happens to us, uh, which is really amazing uh, to say the least. Because remember, there's nothing that we can add to his existence. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't need us. Uh, and you know, I never really thought much about that phrase, that God doesn't need us. Um, and maybe it's because I've heard that most of my life. And, I, and I've always been taught that God is self-sufficient, so there's no needs that God has. Because sometimes people, people will answer this question. When, if somebody asks the question, well, why did God create man? Sometimes a person will say, they mean well, but they'll say, well, because God was alone. Or God was lonely. And so he made he made people. God wasn't lonely, all right? Uh, in fact, that's actually one of the basic ideas behind our understanding of the Trinity is that God is three in one. He is technically one, but he's never alone. And it, you know, it can be a little difficult to grasp, but again, he's infinite and we're finite. Uh, but God didn't create man because he needed man or because um, there was anything that was deficient within God to where he created man. He created man because he is good and he desired to reveal himself. And you can kind of go through a lot of things um, with that. But again, it's never because of a deficiency. 
And so we want to make sure that we recognize that um, as we are uh, thinking about that. There was a, some of you heard me tell, tell the story. I was, when I was a chaplain at the jail, um, I had a dorm where I taught every day um, in the morning a Bible study for the same group of inmates. It was kind of a program that we ran. And so on this one particular day, uh, and I don't remember what book we were going through, but I ended up making the statement that God, you know, God doesn't need us. And so I thought nothing of it, because sometimes this will happen, you know, the way that you have a large room like this, and then along the walls, there are doors to all the cells, downstairs and upstairs. So it's not unusual for one of the inmates to want to get up and go to his room to use the restroom, even though we discourage that. Sometimes that would take place. Sometimes guys had medicine or, you know, different things that would affect them. But this guy got up, and his room was right behind me, which I still didn't think anything of it. Um, and so he, he gets up and he goes, and he has to stand by the door to wait for the, the guard to push the button so he can re release the door and he can go in. And so I'm teaching and, you know, it's kind of going through the lesson. And as he enters his room, we all could hear it. He starts just screaming and yelling and cussing and pounding on the wall. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And, you know, it gets kind of uncomfortable because, you know, like, I'm sure the officer's like, okay, do I need to go over there? Is this guy going to hurt himself? You know, what is happening? Um, and then after a few moments, it kind of dies down. And then I, uh, apparently he came to the door and pushed the button for the officer to be alerted to unlock his door. So that happened. So he comes out. And when he came out, you know, I'm trying to ignore all this, but all of the inmates uh, in the class, as he then begins to walk this way, all their heads turn and follow him. And so I turn and look, and he's holding his Bible, and it is in shreds. I mean, he has just mangled his Bible. I mean, it is unusable and unreadable. And he walks very defiantly towards the back where there's a big 33-gallon uh, trash can, takes his Bible, and he slams it in there. And of course, by this time, I'm not talking, no one's talking, everyone's looking at him. <laughs> you know? And so then, he, so then after he does that, he points his finger at me and he yells. And, he, and I find out at that moment what he's upset about. And he says, if God doesn't need me, then I don't need him. So now all the inmates are looking at him. So after he finishes that, they all do this. <laughs> and they're looking at me. Yeah, they want an <laughs> and so we begin to have this conversation, and I say, well, it's true, God doesn't need us, but we absolutely need God. And I began to <laughs> begin to explain what I meant by that, um, and then point out how good God is, and that we are incomplete without him, and kind of with all the things leading back to why he came uh, in the first place, because we are the enemies of God, and we need to be reconciled, and kind of went through the whole, the whole gospel thing. And so he would ask questions, and every time all the inmates would like, look at him, look at me, look at him, look at me. So then at the end, he's standing there like this, and then he says, well, then I guess if all that's true, I, I need to, to uh, reassess what I think. And I go, yes, you do. And I said, if, and I said, if you would like, I'm more than happy to get you another Bible. And he said, I would like that. Now, the thing that was, I thought, kind of funny was in, spontaneously, all the other inmates, yeah! 
<laughs> clapped my hands, and so then he sat down, and we continued on the class. Uh, but I just had never even imagined that some individual hearing that statement, God doesn't need us, would even affect them. But in his mind, that blew him out of the water because he's thinking, and I think as, as I got to know him a little bit later, I think what was going on in his mind was, so if God doesn't need us, he's probably used to the idea that there has to be something about us that God needs that kind of motivates God to have a relationship with us or to care about us. If you don't have that, you don't have leverage. If there's no leverage, you realize he, he doesn't need us. I'm really at his mercy. And that, that can be kind of scary. Yeah, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But we do need to make sure that, it, that we clearly recognize that it's not because of any deficiency in God. Because there are a lot of people, even Christians, who think that. They've not really thought it through, but they think that. So if, if you think about it, it's actually good that God is that way. Because what kind of God would he be if we, if, if he, if we had leverage over him? You know, now the relationship is very different. Uh, many of us sometimes, correct, well, not, at least not the God of the Bible. You know, in our relationships with others, you know, there are some people, maybe many people, that they don't have, uh, they don't understand how a relationship works. In their mind, you always have to have leverage. Um, they, they want, like, in jail, it's common. You want people to owe you, you don't owe anybody else. That's, there's, that, there's that control there. Uh, sometimes in, in marriage relationships, especially if the husband is abusive, whether it's verbally or physically or both, the idea is control, leverage and control. The idea of there being love and that being coupled with trust, they may use the word love, but they don't understand what that is. So the idea that you just trust this individual and you have no control over things is a, is a kind of, they've never been in a relationship like that, and so it, they, they believe they're in a position of weakness. And they don't like that. Um, so sometimes we have a lot to learn about relationships. And our, the relationship we have with God can be helpful with that. Uh, and again, that's why when we emphasize the fact that God is good, that's why the good we receive from him is not because we're performing. He does want us to obey. And he has promised to bless us if we obey. But God's goodness to us is not because we earn it either before salvation or after salvation. It's because he's good. And if you think about it, it's very similar to when we, when we give gifts to our, our children. We sometimes will say that we're giving them Christmas gifts if they're good. But most all of us understand that our kids are not good. They do disobey. And we still give them Christmas gifts because we love them. And to a degree, anyway, we are good. We're not, not so good that, you know, God owes us. But you know what I mean. So it's that kind of idea. Question? That is way too long. We're covering that on Sunday mornings oh. in Sunday school. Okay. Uh, we spent an hour on that, okay. so I can't do it here. <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good discussion. Huh? Well, yes, that's true, but there's more to it than just that, but yeah. Okay, so back to verse 16. So again, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
So again, the word for is connecting it to what he's been talking about. Uh, he's asked the question um, before, which is, so Christ is preeminent in creation. Why is that the case? Now the answer is going to begin uh, to be given, and it begins immediately. You have the, the words by him or the words in him. This is what we, were, what we left off with last week. So the idea here is that Christ is the sphere within which the work of creation takes place. So what, we, what he's getting at here, what some people haven't thought about is, you know, we often will say God created the heavens and the earth, and we understand what God did the first six days of creation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Bible, remember, there's the Trinity. The Trinity is involved in every aspect. The whole Godhead is involved in what's going on. Here, what Paul is emphasizing to us is Christ in creation. Christ, and he's, he's telling us here that Christ is Jesus. Second person of the Trinity. Second person of the Trinity is the creator. He's the one who's, who is doing these things. So again, we, we don't think of Christ in the sense that he is always separate from the Trinity, we would say the triune God created the heavens and the earth, and that is correct. But we want to make sure that we don't somehow think of Christ as not being involved at all, because that's how that's that seems to be the natural default of position. Because they they've never heard anyone say Jesus created the heavens and the earth, because we don't say it that way. But that's not incorrect to say that. And here he's making that clear uh, that. Christ is the sphere within which the entire work of creation takes place. As it is written, um, one individual says, all the laws and the purposes which guide the creation and the government of the universe uh, reside in him. So when you come across a phrase like the government of the universe, think of that in terms of how we understand the laws of the universe, the law of gravity. Okay, so how the earth rotates and the speed of rotation and how the planets orbit, all of those things are governed by laws that were established by God. And so that's kind of, so God is the one who set all those things in place. And of course, what Paul will make clear is he's the one that holds all those things in place. All those things work the way they work because he exists. All right, so it's not like he's working at this. All right, it's just it exists because he exists. Uh, that's, that's the power that he has, and that's what he's explaining here. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, vines, there's, there's a, and it's, this is on, you can get this on, on uh, line for free. It's called Vines Expository Dictionary, and it's one of those dictionaries that kind of adds uh, some more meat to, uh, to words in helping us to understand them. And so he says that phrase there, in him, describes him, that's Christ, as the designer, the one who, in fellowship with the Father, determine the condition of all things and the laws which govern and control them. Uh, and then as we finished last week, I mentioned a guy named John Eady. Uh, that's a, a set of some older commentaries, not real old, um, but it, it's very, very solid. And he says this, uh, we hold that the act of creation rests in Christ originally and its completion is grounded in him. He is not simply the instrumental cause, but he is also primary cause. The impulse to create came upon him from no coordinate power of which he was either the, either the conscious or the passive organ. So all he means by that is it was of Christ. 
Christ was the one who determined this. He was the one who empowered this. He was the one who came up with this. He was the one who followed through on this. So again, all of that, all you know, the the um, importance then of all these definitions is what they're trying to drive at is helping us to really catch the strength and the depth of what Paul is saying. Paul, what Paul is saying is basically no small thing. It's a it's a very important, very deep thing um, that we can sometimes easily overlook. In the phrase, all things were created in him. Again, that means that Christ is the motive, the desire. Uh, he is the energy. All of that is in him. Christ was not just like a builder who was basically building a plan according to the, the plans of another architect, but he is the one who designed it. It's his own conception. So it'd be like a, a man who's an architect who draws the plans and then he builds his own house. Uh, that's kind of the idea with what's going on here. So... Uh, I think I have in your notes there, and we won't go over it again, but we talked a little bit about the, the Jehovah Witnesses and their translation, which again is not a translation. Um, and when they get into all that, um, you know, they add some things because they believe that Christ is the Son of God and that he was created. Um, so they, would, they believe that he was actually created first and then everything else was created. So that's that's what they kind of keep driving at uh, with what they believe. And, of course, we would say that, no, that's incorrect. Christ was not created. Uh, that's not what is meant by what Paul is saying. So that's where the Greek is important. Uh, but, again, there's, a, there's enough books and helps that are out there that even if you don't know Greek and someone is, let's say, using Greek or saying that they're using Greek, you can still double check what they're saying to see if it's true instead of just automatically believing that what they say is true. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes, you're, sometimes you will hear something and it just may not ring true. You don't want to just let that go. You want to check that out. Uh, it's, but you don't want to use it as an excuse, well, I don't know the Greek, so I guess he's right. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Uh, and there's plenty of, again, there are some great things about the Internet. And there are plenty of helps on there on certain websites that would give you a really good idea of really what's being said and what the Greek is saying so you can at least check to see if what the individual is teaching is in line uh, with others. So uh, keep this in mind. Peter tells us that there's no scripture that's of any private interpretation. And then talks about the Spirit of God and how the Bible was given to us. So when he says that it's of no private interpretation and you kind of read through those verses in Peter... The idea then would be this. So let's say we're looking at a, a particular verse, and let's say that um, as we look at it and we look at commentaries, we discover that, let's say, there's 30 commentaries. Most of the time, commentaries are written by an individual. Sometimes there'll be a group of individuals uh, who've studied the text. And so when they write it, we see they all are in agreement with what the text says. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that just because all 30, that they're correct. It's a pretty good chance they are, but it's, but it's not automatic. Now, here's the reason why that's important. Because sometimes individuals come along and say, well, I've studied it, and I don't think that's correct. I think it's this. Now, because that person is a lone voice, by itself doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong. However, if the consensus is that it means A, and you want to come along and say that it means B, then 
the responsibility is on you to show what they missed. Like how would you disprove or at least erode the foundation of what their un understanding is based on? Uh, because it's, it's not this idea that someone has some maverick idea and they claim, well, God told me, so you have to believe me. That's not how the scriptures work. Um, the scripture was given to the church. That's all believers. And all of us can read and study it. And, and there's this idea that even though God gives us teachers, there's no, there's, there's no understanding that there is a teacher who has perfect understanding of the Bible. That doesn't exist. We, we all do make mistakes. We all study and we all continue to learn. So if an individual has a unique perspective that can be helpful, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean they're right. And so there is a way to check. So, um, uh, so when it comes to like the rise of all these different cults, and just so you know, even though we understand there's the major ones like Mormonism, Jehovah's, et cetera, you know, there are three to 4,000 different cults just in America. The, uh, a cult is, will be labeled as, a, as that kind of a group uh, by like the FBI if they have about 200 followers. So it's like there's 4,000 groups like that in this country. That's amazing. And over 80% of them use the Bible. They use it wrongly, but they use the Bible. You know, remember, I don't know if you remember the Branch Davidians and David Koresh, but you know, he used to have four or five hour Bible studies every day. He was wrong on what he said, but I mean, they studied the Bible. And so sometimes we hear individuals say, well, he must have been right because he used the Bible. That doesn't mean that. Uh, we have to go back and study it and look at it. Um, and so that's why all these sources and, and all these different things we have available, one of the reasons why they've been made available by some of these companies or by certain Christians is because they are doing all they can to make sure we have the tools and resources so that we're not easily led astray. Because we do, we can, we can, we tend to be easily led astray, but there's things out there to help us. Uh, and for some individuals who may not have an opportunity for whatever reason to go to a church that's really trying to study and, and feed, you know, their people, um, they're, they're kind of in no man's land, uh, so to speak. But there's a lot of things that are out there. So I say all that because, again, there are a lot of people who are trying to manipulate people. They're, they're out there. They are trying to get people to follow them because it feeds their ego. You know, they want to live off of your income. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's the danger of the Internet, is people can get a following, they can get a hearing, uh, and if people aren't going to be faithful in, in checking things out, then they can be led astray and then begin not only to believe the wrong things about Christ, that can affect you spiritually. And so um, your understanding of Christ begins to diminish, and then your spiritual life begins to diminish, uh, and you have a lot, of, uh, a lot of difficulties with that. So going on to verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when he talks about the visible and invisible, what is he getting at there um, in what he's saying? So again, from the commentary by John Eady, he says this, The meaning is, what exists within the reach of vision and what exists beyond it? the object of which the eye can take cognizance and the glory which the eye has not seen are equally the handiwork of Jesus. This assertion is true, not only in reference to the limited conceptions of the universe current in the Apostles' day, but true in the widest sense. The visible portion of the creation, 
consisting of myriads of stars, is but a mere section or a stratum of the great fabric. In proportion as power is given to the telescope glass, are new bodies brought into view. Nothing like a limit to creation can be described. The farther we penetrate into space, the luminaries are neither dimmer nor scarcer, but worlds of singular beauty and variety burst upon us. And the distant stardust is found to consist of orbs so dense and crowded as to appear one blended mass of sparkling radiance. Rays of light from the remotest nebulae must have been two millions of years on their inconceivably swift journey to our world. The nearest fixed star is 21 billions of miles from us, so that between it and us there is room in one straight line for 12,000 solar systems, each as large as our own. All this is the result of Christ's omnipotence and love. Now, when this guy wrote this, that was before the Hubble and before, what's the new telescope? Is it Webb? Is that the new one? Thank you. I, I thought it was. So anyway, they, they're, they're sending us pictures of things that no man has ever seen before. No one's ever seen them. And what he says in there, there's, we can never speak of a limit to creation. We haven't reached the edge. I don't know if there is an edge. I, I guess there's an edge. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know I, I don't think the universe is, is infinite. Only God is infinite. But all I know is, is that if there is an edge, it's really far away. <laughs> to say the least. All right, but the point is, is that um, the things that we see, as well as the things that we haven't seen, all that is part of what Christ has created and what he's done. So again, the, the whole goal of this is just to kind of cause you to use your imagination, so to speak, in the broadest sense and be amazed that, again, everything that you can think of, everything that's conceivable, that's what Christ did. That's what he did. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. And if you really think about it, you know, one of my kids were young. You know, we used to go outside and look at the stars, or I'd take them outside and look at flowers, and I would ask them all kind of questions. And, and one of the questions I'd always ask them is, uh, like, we, like just when it comes to flowers, I go, why do you think God made these flowers of all these different colors? Why did he do that? You know, and of course, little kids, you know, like, because he wanted to, because he thought they were pretty. I go, yep, this is exactly why. And then he gave us the ability to see it, which is really cool, you know, because it's fascinating. Even for guys, flowers are really cool. All right? <laughs> when you look at space, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable uh, what they're showing us. And again, that's just all of Christ. It's just, you know, his, his vastness um, is truly, truly incredible. But then he says this. He adds to this, after the, word, after the phrase visible and invisible, he says, were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So when it comes to that, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he is talking about the supernatural spirit world. The supernatural spirit world is highly organized. Um, we do not completely understand it or its hierarchy. Um, we do, like we know when he talks about angels, there's certain angels that we have the names of. Uh, one of the angels is the archangel. Um, they're not all archangels, and there's the seraphim and the cherubim, and so we, there's organization there. There's there's all these things that are going on. It's not chaos that exists. There's you know there's order to all of this, and he's just reminding us here with this terminology that whatever you can imagine as far as spiritual beings and power 
and all of that, all of that, Christ is over that. He created all that, and he's the ruler over all that. Um, you, know, there are, you know, people sometimes have a lot of uh, superstitions. Sometimes they may have a lot of really strange or good ideas about the supernatural. Uh, but again, all of that is under the dominion of Christ. Uh, and that's, again, what he's getting at. He is before those things. He is above those things. So those things do not have any power over him in any way. Um, now, part of the reason why he wrote that is because uh, during the days of Paul, and it is believed by some of those that were in Colossae, and of course it wasn't the only place that happened, it was not uncommon, either both among the Jews and among others, to worship angels. And again, remember there is in part of the, uh, the Gnostic beliefs, or in some of the Gnostic teachings, the belief was is that Jesus was just like an angel. He was just really powerful. And so he's trying to make clear here that, that he is above all of that, that all that is subservient to him in every way. Question? Yeah, uh, I know we obviously have demonic activity. Do you, how long, uh, we've got a two-part question. One is, do you think angels are really involved with our lives? Or is it more if he uses people? And then also, you know, there was obviously demon possession in the Bible. Is that still gone, or, or is it more influence, or is there no way to know? There's a way to know. It's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. Let's see. The first one, angels. Angels are involved in our lives doing the bidding of the Father. We, there's, no, there's not a lot of description as to what all that is. So, uh, I really wouldn't speculate too much on that. Um, I, I, do, I think we can recognize maybe things that... Um, I remember reading the testimony of a guy once. <laughs> he went to Vietnam. He was a preacher. And he said that he, wherever he was, they were coming under bombardment by the enemy. And he said he saw a mortar shell coming at him. I'm not sure if you can see a mortar shell coming at you because I don't know how fast they travel. But he says an angel swooped in and caught it between its wings and carried it away. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't know. Uh, but people have stories like that. Um, I don't let those things rent space in my head. So if they want to believe that, it's okay. I don't. But it doesn't matter. Uh, when it comes to the whole demon thing, um, we would just have to talk about that another day because, again, that would take 30, 40 minutes to uh, get into all that. No, it's okay. Um, yes. <laughs> Since God made us dominion over all living things. Gives dominion over the earth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think that might be one of the reasons why he created man? Well, he did create man to do that, but we no longer have dominion over the earth. We lost it when we sinned. Satan is now the one who's called the ruler of this age. Now, that will be taken back when Christ, I believe, when Christ returns. Uh, but yeah, we are to have dominion. That was the responsibility that we were given. Um, because again, in God's created order, there's order. And so there's areas of responsibility and you know, that kind of thing. And so that's what we were to have. Uh, but I believe that we lost that when we, when I say we, when Adam and Eve sinned. Does that make, does that make sense? So that's why there's all this chaos. Now there's a, there's a degree of, because of our superiority, because we're made in the image of God, that we, that we, in a sense, can exercise a kind of dominion. But it's, it's, 
it gets kind of hairy when you're trying to split the hairs, you know, because man's ability to tame animals and all that kind of stuff that we can do um, goes into part of how God has created us and the created order. It, it's just really messed up because of sin. And, and Satan is a big part of that. Um, so, anyway. Does that kind of answer your Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, uh, and, uh, I didn't write down the exact location of this, but basically, later on in the book of Colossians, Paul writes, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his, sen- by his sensuous mind. In the New American Standard, it says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So we do see some of that today in the church because some individuals will, will talk about their encounter uh, with angels, etc. And when people hear those stories, they view those individuals as either having a special experience or being special or whatever and somehow that qualifies them to speak about whatever they, whatever they speak about and that's one of the ways that false doctrine enters into the church is Christians allow that to happen because they use the wrong criteria uh, in determining who they're going to listen to and who they're not going to listen to so that's why he says there and why, and why also Paul brings up this idea um, that Christ is again preeminent over all of these things so he wants to make sure he's leaving no stone unturned when it comes to the spiritual world, the physical world, or the material world, whether it's what we see or what we don't see. Uh, the bottom line is, is Christ is preeminent. He's the creator. He is overall. There is nothing more powerful than him. That's it. Um, and so he's the one that, that obviously we can depend upon um, and the one who sustains the universe, which he will say uh, very clearly in a few moments. Let me read to you what Warren Wiersbe says about this section. He says this, everything exists in him, for him, and through him. Jesus Christ is the sphere in which they exist, the agent through which they came into being, and the one for whom they were made. Paul's use of three different prepositions is one way of refuting the philosophy of the false teachers. For centuries, the Greek philosophers had taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. The primary cause is the plan, the instrumental cause is the power, and the final cause is the purpose. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned it. He is the instrumental cause. He produced it. He is the final cause. He did it for his own pleasure. Uh, So, again, that just kind of summarizes everything that Paul is saying in this passage. So I want to I go over with you four implications of all of this in relation to the theory of evolution. Uh, again, remember that the theory of evolution is not some harmless uh, philosophy or theology that's, that's out there. Again, it is a theory. It's very important, even though most of the time when it's taught, the, the word theory is not used. Remember that it's never been proven. Okay, it's very, you read all the science books you want. Evolution has never been proven. It's, it's assumed to be true uh, or assumed that's how things are. They do use certain terms when they speak of evolution in the sense of micro and macro. So micro, uh, you can use the word evolution. It may not be the best word because of confusion, but it's not incorrect. 
And what that means is, there's a famous story that Darwin made, that Darwin made famous when he was observing these finches, and he talked about how, their, how long their beaks were, and there were times when their beaks were longer, and when their beaks were longer, it, it corresponded with there being a drought, and it was more difficult to break into these seeds that they needed for food. And there was a time when their beaks would shorten, and that was when there was more rain, and it was easier to break. And so he kind of talks about that, and he would talk about this being an evolution. Well, the bottom line is, is God made that bird so that that beak would do that. You know, it just, it, it, it's a variation of him. But what we do know is this, that finch never becomes a beagle. Okay? That's macroevolution. The idea that, if you think about it, every single living thing came from the same place. Some cells that I guess the theory now is we're in a pond of dirty water and somehow spontaneously, whether it was a lightning bolt or something, and when I say that I'm not trying to be facetious, that's what they say. A lightning bolt hit it and boom, we had life. And out of that came everything. And of course it would take millions of years, billions of years, because it's a slow process, it's random, there's no real purpose behind it, and from that came everything. Came the fish, the turtles, the whales, the birds, and the monkeys, which eventually <coughs> we came along after that, supposedly, and all those types of things. But, this, but, the, but the main thrust behind evolution really is, when you get down to it, is trying to explain origins without God. Staying away from God, how can we, in a secular way, some might even use the word scientific way, uh, which would be an improper use of that word in that sense, but nonetheless, uh, the idea is it's trying to explain things without there being an intelligent designer, without there being a creator. Because, they, they don't, because if you acknowledge that there's a creator, you immediately have to get down into morals, right? Where do morals come from? And it would naturally come from the individual who's created everything. If there is no creator, then there is no singular source for morals. And then, and there's all these theories about where we would get morals from. So I don't remember what I have in your notes. Uh, I, I may have all four of these. Uh, let me look. Uh, do I have all four? Yes. Oh, but I only have one sentence. Okay. Um, all right, so here we go. So let me go, let me go through these four. Four implications. Um, of the theory of evolution in regards to all this. So number one, um, evolution destroys any and all, which I just mentioned, inherent moral law. If there is no creator, no God in the universe, then there is no divine moral authority. We can justify whatever we want, from premarital sex to homosexuality, to irresponsible genetic engineering, to mercy killing, to genocide. Dostoevsky said, if God is dead, everything is justifiable. So, that just says in more detail what I just gave you. If you think about it, um, if you were ever having a discussion with somebody, you can try to figure out yourself. How, do you, how does mankind decide what is moral if there is no God? How does, how does that happen? You know, some will say, well, you have a vote. Um, and so then that means the majority decide. Well, now, we do know from history, it's not a good idea. What if the majority decide that everyone who's homosexual should be killed? According to that, the logic of that, if that's what the majority decides, that is what is moral. 
Most individuals say, well, no, that's not right. Based on what? And if they say, well, you just can't kill people. Based on what? What is, who decides that? Um, is it only smart ones? The scientists like to think they're the ones that should decide that. Um, but I guess if you're the one in charge, it's always a good idea. But the idea is, is that when it comes to this, that, that really is a problem in trying to figure that out. How do we figure out what is right and wrong? And so the dilemmas we have, for example, in our country is all of these different arguments that we have, if you just think about it for a while, what is normally the one thing people want to make sure is not used in the discussion? The Bible. If we talk about abortion, where do we as Christians get the idea that all human life is sacred? We didn't make that up. We get that from the Bible because of what God said. God determines. Huh? If you don't have a Bible, no, it doesn't do that. Really? There's tons of societies where that is not the case. Oh, okay. So remember that whatever culture you live in, your conscience is influenced by your culture. No, it, it there there is there is some knowledge of right and wrong, but not not in the sense of how we would think of all these various morals. Uh, there are moral standards everywhere that people have. Normally, if, when you study anthropology, it may be self-serving. Uh, a lot of times, missionaries come back with stories of certain cultures. Like an example would be, um, remember if you guys remember this, but there's a, a guy. What was his last name? I think his last name was Richardson. He wrote a book, and he had been a missionary in New Guinea, and uh, they were trying to figure out a way to explain the gospel to this tribe, um, because when they told the story, they cheered when Judas betrayed Jesus, and they thought Judas was the hero of the story, because in their culture, that kind of betrayal is the highest achievement that anyone can have, uh, and so they're like, how in the world do you explain the gospel to people like that? Either, and so they were trying desperately to figure out how can we help them connect. Well, the way the story goes is um, you know, they're with a very small tribe. A lot of small tribes are around there. And you know, they're always fighting with each other and different things. Well, on this one particular morning, you know, they heard screaming, yelling, shouting, and they looked out the window of the hut they were staying in, and there was an all-out war just out in the backyard. The people from their village was being attacked by another village and they're trying to kill each other. And they were killing each other. And so they're watching this trying to figure out where do we go? They didn't have any guns and they were pretty concerned. And as they were watching all this unfold, one of the young men that was out in the field during this battle, he, he drops his shield and his sword and he takes off running by himself back towards them to the village. And he comes running in there uh, and there's a, a, a mother nursing her baby by the fire and he runs up to her and he grabs the baby and takes off and he runs back to the battlefield carrying this child and, and when he's running with this child all the people that are fighting see him coming and they all just stop they just stop fighting and he runs right by them and he keeps running and as he keeps running all the warriors turn and go home and what they found out later was he ran and he took that baby to the other village and gave it to a lady there and he came back. And so the missionaries that watched us are like, okay, 
what is going on? You know, one moment you're trying to kill each other, and a man runs in the with a baby, and you stop. And so what was explained to them was that was called the peace triangle. And they said that when we have two warring villages, if you take one of their children and give it to the other one to raise as their own, as long as that child is alive and remains with that village, they cannot fight because that's the peace child. And then, of course, instantly what they did was they then began to explain the gospel that we were the enemies of God and God sent his own son as the peace child and kind of explained it that way. Um, so there can be times when, again, a person's conscience can be affected very differently. We would, I mean, who would have imagined that kind of a thing? Um, in fact, I remember reading a story where the, uh, one, of the, one of the favorite stories of this one village, because uh, they were headhunters, um, you know, and they, they, and just so you know, they really did know how to shrink a head. You, know, you cut the heads off, they, you know, it's the way you boil it, um, and you can actually shrink it, and they would keep it as trophies. They would give it to their wife, and they would shine it up, uh, and they would have it in the house, and if you had several of these skulls, I mean, that was a, that was a big deal. So. One of the stories they used to tell each other was that uh, there was a, another tribe that was trying to make peace with them because their tribe was at that time very superior to them and the other tribe didn't want to have a, a war. And so the chief befriended the emissary and you know, they, on a regular basis they would come over and they would trade, whether it was fishing gear, spears, whatever. And this went on for months. And as this went on, the, you know, the emissary began to feel more and more comfortable. And so then the, the chief of this one village decided to throw a, a large, a dinner, like a dinner party, and invited this emissary to come with his family and with some of his entourage. And so this guy, they came. And so they all came and they sat around this, uh, these, these tables uh, that they had set up. And they're all sitting there and they're bringing out the food. And, and so then the chief of the village, he gets up to make, to make a, uh, um, a, a, like a speech. And he asked the man, uh, the emissary to stand up and so he begins to address his people and of course as he finishes his little speech he puts his mug down or whatever he was drinking out of and pulls out a knife and when he pulls the knife out the emissary knew exactly what was going to happen he'd been betrayed and there was this look of shock and fear and when the people tell the story that was their favorite part was the look of shock and fear they were just giggling like little kids it was so great, and they would like try to try to make the face themselves, like you know, you know, whatever. And the chief, you know, basically sliced his throat, and then they everyone else immediately rose up and wiped out his family and everyone else that was from that village, uh, and then of course cut his head off. And they just that was just the, one of the one of the great stories of their village and of their people uh, was that, and that was where these missionaries were. That was before they found out about the peace child. Um, so. You know, when it comes to uh, the conscience thing, it's very common for us to think that the conscience of every human being is gonna be just like ours. But it's, it's not. Um, it's, it's gonna be very different. Based again on how they're raised, the culture, uh, and that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, number two, or secondly. <coughs> evolution destroys any and all intrinsic basis for self-image. When we teach children the Bible, they learn we are made in the image of God. We are his children. We are valuable and precious in his sight. But here, in contrast, is what one textbook teaches children. To be sure, both butterflies and humans have descended from a remote common ancestor. 
most likely a small worm-like marine animal resembling a flatworm. Uh, there's an individual named George Gaylord Simpson. He was, he's dead now, but he was a leading evolutionist. He wrote this, in the world of Darwin, man has no special status other than his definition as a distinct species of animal. He is akin, not figuratively, but literally, to every living thing, be it an amoeba, a tapeworm, a seaweed, an oak tree, or a monkey. So the question then is, what long-lasting, generation-shaping impact do you think that that kind of teaching has on an individual's self-worth? So there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about self-worth, self-value, all that along the way. Again, remember that if you take away God in the Bible, what would it be based on? There's nothing really to base it on. You are not special. You're not. There's, there's, you're just whatever. There's, I, a friend of mine sent me something. I'll have to read it to you next week. It is an article, or like kind of like a little speech this lady wrote. This, these two ladies, they're friends. They're both atheists. And the one friend died. And my friend, who's a pastor, said he was talking to the one lady because the other lady said I, she, they wanted nothing about God in the funeral. Nothing. And so he asked the question, so what would I even say? Well, she wrote this thing up, which he's not going to say. Uh, but it is the most, it is the emptiest, most hopeless thing that, you, that you'll ever hear. And yet, and I thought when I read it, I misunderstood his text. And I thought that whoever wrote that was mocking those who were believing what she believed. He said, no, no, she's serious. And it, it's quite phenomenal. So... I'll read that to you next week. I promise you, it, you will just shake your head in disbelief. Yes? What's so funny about that? All these folks that actually believe it. Some actually do, which is, which uh, there's been yeah, stories. Well, um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of words you could use to describe individuals. There was, there's, I'm trying to remember, the, there was a famous philosopher, not super famous, but he was a famous philosopher who was a, a nihilist, who basically, which I think is, is the natural conclusion you would draw if there's no God, is a nihilist. That means there is no meaning in anything. And so it doesn't matter what you do. And this guy came home and packed his suitcase and left. And he had a wife and two kids. And if I remember correctly, I think he left a note. And basically it said, um, it was great. I really enjoyed these few years with you. I do hope you all do well. See you later. And according to the way the story goes is he thought nothing of it. He says, it doesn't matter. There's, he says, there's no meaning to me being there and no meaning to me leaving. There's, I mean, he was living it out. Uh, it's pretty sad, to say the least, but there are, there are some who actually at least say they do. I wonder what they do when they're old, if they oh, do live that long. Yeah, there's a few that still do. I mean, the heart can be pretty hard. But that can be just pride. Well, absolutely, it's always yeah, that way. They don't want yeah. anybody to realize that they're I agree with you. Um, Thirdly, which is very uh, short, evolution does destroy any and all eternal purpose in life because this is all there is. 
Uh, and then the fourth thing is this. Evolution destroys any and all hope in the human heart. If evolution is true, we're all doomed. We're all aboard the Titanic, and there are no lifeboats. We can sing and dance and throw the dice and drink beer, but there is no escape in the iceberg. We're all living on a doomed planet in a doomed universe, which will one day grow cold and dark and still. And all will become as, the, all will become as though nothing had ever been. We are no more than a match struck in the dark and blown out again. Uh, one evolutionist, uh, his name was J.W. Burrow, he described man, he said that man was a lonely, intelligent mutation in a cold, passionless universe. Um, and he said there are no clues for human conduct and no answers to human moral dilemmas. And then uh, there was another professor, his name was William Provine of Cornell University, and he said there is no inherent moral or ethical law that exists nor are there absolute guiding principles for human society. The universe cares nothing for us, and we have no ultimate meaning in life. Well, oftentimes, individuals that are similar to this, when it's lived out, are individuals who are always in some position of some kind of power. They may be limited, they may, and, they, and, and they have money, and so it's easy for them to say all this, because they still get to do whatever they want. Uh, a lot of individuals in history who've been dictators are kind of in this realm. They, they may not be able to articulate all of this, but that's where they are. All that matters is what I want. In, in the end, it ends up being nothing but power. Uh, that's what Nietzsche kind of wrote about. Uh, you know, the Ubermensch, the Superman, the, you know, the Aryan race, and going to rule over all, and it's all about power and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you, you, you may be a little sociopathic in some of that, um, it's always a lonely life, um, and if you meet your demise and you're executed or you are assassinated, uh, it, that would be that would be the norm. Some of them would say that. Some of them would, would not want to admit that. But it's but it's a uh, it's a bleak it's a bleak existence. When that kind of philosophy began to be espoused, especially after the writing of Darwin's book, uh, if you look at history. That is, that is was around that time after the 1880s or what have you, began a period of about 100 years where some of the worst dictators in the world came to power and the highest number of people were slaughtered. Remember, um, you have Stalin, 50 million at least, 50 million of his people were killed. Um, you have uh, uh, Mao Zedong in China uh, where millions of people were slaughtered. Several countries in Africa where hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered. I mean, it just kind of became uh, a very common thing. And most everyone, most philosophers, both Christian and non-Christian, uh, do point to that kind, this kind of philosophy and the development of evolution uh, and you know, kind of giving birth to all of that kind of a thing, that idea. Um, but anyway, it's... So it's all connected in that sense. But it's very bleak. And there are many today who, who believe that. If you, list, if you study various forms of communism and socialism, there's a large element of this kind of stuff in there. Because uh, people are always viewed, and they don't, they don't always spell it out, but people are viewed as pawns. You know, you always speak in terms of the masses. Um, the idea, so if, so uh, there's a lot of individuals who believe that uh, in depopulation, there's so many people in the world I mean, they truly believe that. And they believe the world would be better off if we can get rid of about 5 billion people at least, some more. 
uh, and they all have different ideas as to how that would happen, um, but they don't really think anything of it. I'm sure that in their minds, it's probably going to be everyone else who's killed, not their family, but you know, that's kind of, that's like a very common thing, uh, at least, especially in universities, but not limited to universities. Um, it's, I mean, it's unbelievably common. Uh, you see that in a lot of uh, dystopian movies, you know, movies about the future. If you listen carefully to the narration or listen carefully to how the characters talk about how world events got to the place, it's always that kind of philosophy that leads to those things. All your science fiction writers recognize that. Um, and that is the direction that our, that our country is going to. Yes, absolutely, because correct, right? Remember the argument. The argument now, well, it's not brand new, but the argument's always been they, they acknowledge it's a baby, but they'll say it's not a person. And but again, there's a lot of them that only do that because they'll say this. They'll say, well, that's because we got to find a way to get the Christians to stop yelling. You know, there's been a few individuals who said, hey, if you just got, if you got to kill a baby so you can have a good life, then that's what you do. And there's people who actually say that, men and women. Um, but anyway, we have to stop. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> we will continue next week uh, and move on into the rest of the uh, verses that, uh, as he speaks about Christ. Father, as always, we are grateful for what you've given us, and we thank you, Father, for the truth of the word. Father, we are amazed when we think about the direction that the world is going in, and even from where the world has come. Uh, and Father, when it's, when it's is godless, it is incredible. And we are aware of the evil. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you remind us that we would be the same if it was not for Christ. Um, and that there are many who are living this kind of life or living out this kind of philosophy who either are unaware of Christ uh, and their hearts have been hardened by sin um, and their judgment has been hardened by sin. And Father, we know that the only answer is Christ. And we pray, Lord, that if nothing else, that we will be committed to sharing Christ with those that we meet and ask, Lord, that you would be kind and patient as we seek to tell those who don't know you that they may come to know Christ. We know, Lord, in the end that all these things will be changed when the Lord returns. And, Father, we, we would like that to happen as soon as possible. Father, we ask that you would keep us safe as we are dismissed and as we go home and that you would watch over us and use us, Father, uh, to your glory in the lives of others. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.